This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey guys, we're with Ace from the Sega 16 forums and a million other places online. How you doing, man? Doing well, how are you? Good. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to do the interview. I've been a fan of your work since before my website was even a website, and I was following your progress on Sega 16. So, Thanks for that. Now, I'm you are the writer of the uh, How to Tell a Good Genesis from a Bad Genesis uh, forum topic, right? You're the original That's correct. Writer? So that that has been like the Genesis Bible for so many people who are looking to figure out their motherboard revisions and and the different things. How did that even start? That was actually about 11 years ago when I got my first Genesis, which was actually a VA7 Model 1. I wasn't aware of all the little quirks of the Genesis at the time, but that was also when I had seen the first audio mod for the Genesis, which was actually the crystal clear audio mod. Mm-hmm. And over time, I ended up accumulating a couple of other Genesis Model 2s as well, because this one actually had a faulty controller port. And I have a family friend who owns a pawn shop, and he had several, had quite a number of Genesis Model 2s, some Model 1s, so I figured I'd get a Genesis Model 2 in. And that's when I really started to see that some things just didn't really work out very well because the first thing I noticed when I had plugged in this Genesis was the composite video was absolute crap. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't have access to RGB at the time or even S-Video. I wasn't even aware of that at the time. So I plugged it in over composite and I just saw vertical lines streaking down the screen when the VA7 I had prior didn't even have that. And on top of that, there was the crystal clear audio mod that I had brought up earlier. I was not noticing the bad audio quality from the VA7, specifically because I didn't actually have an EV cable at uh, at first. I was just reusing the RF box from my NES. Although that actually is what brought the audio quality differences to my attention. The RF box? No, the the crystal clear audio mod. No, the RF box. You can tell the difference through RF. (laughs) Well. I mean, you if can you really listen bit, with headphones, because yeah. through speakers it's not as obvious. Mm-hmm. So the crystal clear audio mod. Um, now that's not the one that uh, that you worked on, correct? No, that's no, that's not that's not my that floating around. Right, that was made by a certain. Uh, his username is TMEE on Sega Sixteen. Mm-hmm. I had built the circuit, and I personally was not actually that impressed with the result because the, a few things. The design was actually quite complex with quite a number of transistors followed by an op-amp to amplify the signal. But even with that, I found the end result to be somewhat underwhelming, especially with regards to volume levels. I thought it was a bit quiet, and I really didn't like the low-pass filtering 
that it had because it was actually at a very high cutoff frequency. And my ears are sensitive to high frequencies. So mine too, actually. I get in arguments yeah. with uh, with friends that are in bands and my old bandmates all the time because I could actually hear high frequency noise that they can't. So we'll have. I mean, it's for people that don't understand this. Let me just pause this for a second. For anybody that doesn't understand what that's like, imagine if you and I are having a discussion and you're like, "Bob, uh, the monkey is on your shoulder," and I'm like, I don't, "What do you mean? There's no monkey." You're like, dude, there's a fucking monkey on your shoulder. And I feel like it's it's that extreme. Like I you know, people with a higher range of frequency of hearing could literally hear things that other people cannot. So when you try to have these conversations with them, it's very much like that like the monkey reference. Like they they can't hear it, so they either just believe you and say, Okay, I guess I can't hear it, or they think you're nuts. So yeah, imagine trying yeah, to have this like conversation the... that can't understand it, it's hard, you know? It's like with uh, a CRT. If there's a 15 kilohertz CRT just next to me, I can hear the high-pitched noise very clearly, and it actually gets very irritating after a while. Yeah, me too, except um, I'm just so used to hearing it. It's like bad parents and their screaming kids. They just ignore it because they're just so used to hearing it all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just I did completely – I can tune it right out. It's almost like a white noise for me. But I'm sorry. Continue the uh, crystal clear audio mod. Yeah, so I had mentioned the gain that was uh, rather low, plus the filtering because of the fairly high cutoff frequency. And especially, I find that the YM2612 and YM3438 are actually very harsh mm -hmm. with little to no low-pass filtering. Actually, you can't get away with using no low-pass filtering at all because the chip separate is 53 kilohertz, but there's still a lot of high-frequency garbage past that, which mm -hmm. needs to be filtered out. Otherwise, you just get distorted garbage. Yeah, I think Rene ran into a lot of the same things when designing his uh, FM Powerbase or FM Powerbase Mini. I'm probably right. saying that wrong. I'm sorry, Rene. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know exactly how his circuit is done. I've only analyzed the Japanese master system, which, quite frankly, is a bit meh, mostly because of the op-amp used, but I personally don't mind it. As yeah, much. So I recently just posted a very quick and dirty, you know, uh, YouTube compression killing like comparison between the Japanese Master System, the FM Powerbase Mini, and the um, the EverDrive FPGA based FM sound emulation. Um, and I very much preferred. Uh, I actually thought the FM Powerbase Mini was the best, uh, but I preferred the ones that had the correct low pass filtering on it correct i mean it's my opinion well i don't actually think that there's low pass filtering per se on the master system it sounds more like high pass filtering right uh, so on the japanese master system whatever they do i could uh like I, I like it i'm not saying it's bad but i could hear the harshness of it and a lot of other people probably don't have the same you know insane mutant hearing um right. they like they said they liked it so it's uh, it's kind of interesting yeah to i like it too but the, it seems like, depending on the LM358, even between different LM358s, you could get different levels of crackling with the uh, Japanese Master System. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a great, great way to put it, crackling, yeah. So. Yeah, but even then, I had noticed, because my colleague who worked on the Mega Amp with me, Villahead94, he has actually done some experiments with the YM2413 in that console, and what he had found, and what I had noticed when he was sent me samples was... Uh, between different op-amps, TD-1308, LM-358, what I had noticed was that the LM-358 tended to amplify the high frequencies a fair bit and made them sound a lot more harsh. Hmm. Well, you know, there is one thing um, 
I definitely want to continue down this road, but the, the one difference between audio and video is um, audio can very much reach a point where it's preference-based. Whereas when you're talking about video signals, you put it on an oscilloscope and there's a, a tolerance range for each, you know, for each color in RGBS, for the correct voltage outputs, for composite. That's exactly right. So, That's exactly right. Yeah, so while you could talk about, well, I like to turn the brightness and sharpness up on my TV, you can't talk about video levels. I mean, it's ones and zeros. It has to fall in with the tolerance. Right. You have, you have your specific specs. You have to stick with intolerances for that. Exactly, but with Whereas audio, with audio, it's really, I mean, that's why there's It's just purely so subjective. It's yeah. purely subjective, like with uh, retro PCs that uh, different uh, sound cards will have different levels of filtering because those also have FM synthesis. Mm-hmm. Some of them are very heavily filtered and others have none whatsoever, almost none. I yep. personally tend to go for the more filtered ones, like the Sound Blaster Pro, because that one actually has a low-pass filter that I personally like since it muffles the sound to a way... To a degree where it doesn't actually hurt my ears over time. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So that, uh, I guess, the crystal clear audio mod and uh, wanting wanting to add your own revisions, that's probably, I'm assuming, what drove you to make the mega... So what, the mega audio amp? The mega amp? The mega amp. Mega amp. Yeah. Okay. The, the so main driving factor... <laughs> yeah, it's, it gets a bit confusing. Uh, the main idea, though, with the mega amp was because the... the um, Crystal Clear Audio Mod was not designed for the YM twenty six twelve, and I've actually got into several arguments about which chip is actually what was intended to be put in the Genesis, and I will continue to argue that it's the YM twenty six twelve, especially when you see Border Visions VA two and VA two point three on the Genesis Model two, mm-hmm. because the ASIC in there was not actually designed by Yamaha. Unlike other Genesis models, it was actually Toshiba who made those. And I would assume that possibly Yamaha didn't want to give their FM core to Toshiba. So what Toshiba did to work around that was to just use an external YM2612. And specifically the YM2612, because there is a discrete version of the YM3438. But if that was really what Sega intended to use from the get-go, one would think that... Sega would have stuck with the YM2612, not, sorry, not the YM2612, the YM3438. So the only, the only thing I'm going to add to that now, I've never interviewed anybody from Sega, I don't have any inside info, but out of the research I've done and out of all of the patterns that I've seen, I've, I've come to the assumption, so, you know, assumptions or you know, whatever, take it as you will, that all of the choices Sega made were in-the-moment choices based on what, it, what they needed to do that day. So I don't think there was ever an original plan of this is what the Genesis should be. I have a feeling that every time a new revision came about, it's like, what are you doing about the audio chip? Fucking glue it in. Come on. We're going to make 100,000 of these. Do it. <laughs> so It would seem that way until you consider the manufacturing process between the A6 and the YM2612 and YM3438. Because the A6 are CMOS. Mm-hmm. The YM3438 is CMOS. The YM2612 is NMOS. Good point. So going by that, I would think that it would make more sense, at least in terms of cost, to just directly integrate a YM3438. Yeah, very good point. Hmm. Although at the same time, the DAC was changed in the chip. And the example I keep bringing up is Afterburner 2, which that one makes very heavy use of the DAC noise. And if you were to run it on a console with a YM3438, it sounds incredibly dry. Interesting. 
because it seems like it's the background notes that make use of the DAC noise the most. And they're very clear on a Genesis with a YM2612. But if it has a YM3438, they're somewhat muted. They're just background instruments that are barely audible. So I'm leaving a note for myself for this. Do you have um, audio examples of this? I do have an archive of samples. Not on this computer. I have it on my main PC off, yeah, off screen. Yeah, I'm just going to leave a note, and uh, I'm going to punch in uh, and interrupt this interview when we... Um, actually, you know what? Let me just do this right now. So I just punched in the audio samples that Ace sent me so you guys could hear for yourself the difference. Um, I'll post the links down below because YouTube compression screws with everything. But that's, uh, you know, I, I never I never knew that. That's awesome. I'm, I'm so glad uh, so glad we get to hear that. <laughs> so, But, yeah, so, I mean, how did you figure that out just over and over of using different board revisions and all of a sudden you just heard it and went, holy crap, why is this different? It was uh, at first I wasn't ex exactly sure what was the deal with the difference, but over time with experience and also learning through CJEP in Quebec and university now, uh, it made me understand exactly what it is that, uh, at least with regards to uh, degraded audio quality with certain board revisions, particularly the VA7 Genesis Model 1 and pretty much every Genesis since then. Uh, it's it boils down really to Sega's obsession, really, with using a second-order low-pass filter, which what that does is it actually the order is really how harsh the filter is, pretty much how steep your roll-off is from the cutoff point onwards, which is basically a first order is a relatively shallow drop in frequency amplitude, mm -hmm. but the higher the order, the steeper it gets. Gotcha. And so, the thing, too, is that the second-order filter has a relatively low cutoff frequency. I don't remember off the top of my head what it is, but I remember it's some somewhere in the 1,000 kilohertz range, but something maybe around 6,000. I don't exactly remember. I'd have to recalculate that. Hmm. Um, so when I, I first started realizing there were audio differences, um, I happened to have a Genesis that was, you know, one of the earlier ones that say high-definition graphics with that EXT port and back that no one in America ever used. And it sounds, I mean, I still have it. It sounds amazing. It's exactly what I remember Genesis sounding like. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then I got a CDX, um, and the audio in that was absolutely god-awful. And then no, I there's a Genesis this... 3, and the audio was good. So I put up that comparison online, and I got, you know, I got reamed for it, because people say that CDX audio is awesome, there's got to be something wrong with my CDX, which is very, very plausible. I, I don't think it's your CDX, because even mine doesn't sound very good. The filtering on it is very, very weird. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, the volume is among the lowest of any Genesis variant I've ever come across. Mm-hmm. And to in add to that, the XI sounds pretty much about the same. 
Gotcha. It doesn't sound very good. Its volume is very low. Mm-hmm. And the headphone amp seems to bass boost. Yes. But it doesn't really sound that good. It's just like... I don't think so either, no. No, yeah. and the op amp setup that uh, JVC uses is an absolute mess. <laughs> I mean, it's just dual op amps everywhere. Nothing makes sense. And it's just cascaded through so many different stages. You just look at it and you think to yourself, what is this? Because it's just so damn messy mm-hmm. for an end result that is underwhelming. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and it's um, the same deal with uh, the VA7 to VA, uh, VA7 Genesis Model 1 and VA0 to VA1.8 Genesis Model 2, which, which is a three-stage setup that doesn't even work very well, especially because of op-amp choice. Mm-hmm. So your mega amp can be installed in all of those to restore the original sound of it, correct? That is correct. Yeah, it's, uh, it's on my list of things to do is to put that in my CDX, actually, because I'm really looking forward to seeing the biggest difference. So how will that affect Afterburner 2, then? Uh, that's actually not down to the amplifier. That's down to the FM chip. And the CDX uses the ASIC integrated YM3438. So you won't be hearing the background notes that well. And on top of that... Uh, when you move to GOAC designs, like with uh, the VA4 Genesis Model 2 and the Genesis 3, mm-hmm. those YM3438s are further altered, where the DAC noise is actually even less pronounced. And on top of that, the volume is lower overall. Hmm. But what I noticed as well with the YM3438 while designing the Mega Amp and also comparing GOAC-based uh, Gena clones, it seems as if the YM3438, if you don't buffer the signal first you need to use very high resistance between the chips outputs and the input to your amplifier because it looks to source a lot of current and being as it's a CMOS device it sources current rather than sync like the YM2612 mm-hmm. so what ends up happening is when you have too little resistance and most clones will go with 10k ohms series resistance that ends up distorting mostly low frequency sounds as well as anything using PCM audio. Mm-hmm. So what I found was, at least for the ASIC model, uh, you need about 51 kilo ohms or something like that, as well as about 33 for the GOAC version. And even on top of that, on the ASIC YM3438, I noticed that I'm not sure if it's a voltage drop or current limiting. I didn't actually take measurements. The power pins are not directly connected to 5 volts or ground, except on the XI. Whereas on Sega Sega's original systems, what I noticed was that earlier earlier systems had about 1K ohm resistors on 5 volts and ground, mm-hmm. which was then dropped to 560 ohms. And that seems to alter the voltage. I'm not sure if it's to the DAC or the digital section, mm-hmm. but it does alter the volume because the chip seems to the chip doesn't get as much voltage through at least that's what i would assume huh weird um could you explain a little bit because the question i get all the time is how come you could put um, a spdif toss link whatever you want to call it the digital audio output on a snes but not a genesis from what i can tell the genesis doesn't have actually any really real place to get digital audio from at least not i2s audio mm-hmm. because if you look at the uh, Super NES sound uh, hardware, there is an I2S DAC connected to it, so you could just tap directly into the I2S signals. But on a Genesis, there's no such thing. You would uh, 
basically you can't do that because the DAC is integrated within the YM2612 and YM3438. So all you have is analog audio. Right. Gotcha. Um, and also because there's multiple sound sources going into the output amp, right? That's correct, yeah, because there's you, you've got the YM2612 or YM3438. You have an SN76489, which is the carryover from the master system mm-hmm. that's just split to dual mono. You've got auxiliary audio from the Sega CD slot plus auxiliary audio from the cartridge slot, which is where the 32X passes its audio into the mix. Mm-hmm. So, all right, um... Let's put the 32X on hold, but I want to come back to that for a second. So um, your Mega Audio Amp, is that an open source design? Is that something you sell? I don't sell it yet. I do have a PCB design that I do need to correct because I just earlier in the year released the Mega Amp 2.0, mm-hmm. which is uh, correcting pretty much things that I thought were... Uh, were a bit limited with the original Mega Amp. I had mm-hmm. some complaints about... Uh, Sega CD passed through on this Model 2 Sega CD not working anymore. Hmm. And I wasn't exactly satisfied with the gain I was getting out of the circuit. The volume levels were matching later Genesis revisions, but I couldn't get it as loud as the Genesis Model 1 because the op-amp I'm using, which is the TL074, doesn't seem to have enough voltage swing. So what ends up happening is the the entire waveform just gets chopped off Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you end up with distorted uh, audio which is actually the issue with early Genesis Model 1s. Specifically, we got the VA2 board revision first in North America, but Japan had VA0 and VA1 prior. Mm -hmm. Those ones have an issue with their preamp. The gain is actually too high, and inside the CXA 1034 uh, headphone amp, there's actually a fixed gain amplifier for that, Mm -hmm. for the headphone out. But because the preamp is so loud the audio ends up getting garbled, especially for games that are either loud or bass heavy. Yeah, it's almost like it's clipping a little bit. It is, because it it goes beyond the capacities of the internal amp. Mm-hmm. And that was something that was corrected with the VA3 revision, which kept going until VA6.8, but VA7 was when the entire audio design just went down the pan. So Mega Amp version 2.0 really corrects all of that as well. So if you install that in any version of the Genesis, then you get pretty much the proper audio. You do. And you've also got the Sega CD pass-through with the Pro version, which that one's a more complex design that is actually based off Sega's original rather lackluster design from the V7 Genesis Model 1 onwards to the VA 1.8 Genesis Model 2, because that's a case of right idea, wrong execution, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in that there is first mixing of the internal audio, the Genesis Plus, the 32X. Uh, at the first stage, it then splits off between the Sega CD expansion slot and the final amplifier that delivers the audio to the DIN on the console. Right, so that is definitely something I want to talk to you next about. Hold on, it's, uh, I'm usually drinking beer on these, but I got my wife's coffee mug, and now I'm switching to Diet Pepsi. What a rebel. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, um, I- so the integration of 32X and Sega CD audio is something I've argued a lot about over the years because uh, Sega's instructions are impossible to decipher. It's like freaking hieroglyphics, the original Sega CD instructions. And so many people think that you have to run that audio cable out and into the, the 3.5 jack and everything. Um, and I've done every audio capture that I could think of, even with, uh, was the CDDA audio? I'm probably getting that wrong, but... CDDA. Uh, I, 
so can you explain how the audio pass through works in um in maybe in technical terms why you don't need that jumper cuz uh people still insist that you need it but I've never found that you do at least in the model 1 Genesis and Sega Well you actually don't the thing is if you were to look at the schematics for the uh Genesis Model 1 there is an audio path from the Sega CD expansion slot to the internal amplifier mm-hmm. where the Sega CD audio gets mixed in with everything else the pass through cable isn't really necessary unless you want to, say, hook it up to a sound system or something. And that was the conclusion I came to, is that Sega just wanted to market this as, you know, hey, it's 200 bucks, but look at you have a high-end CD player that you could put directly into your, you know, your AVR at home. So That's what it would seem, but with the Model 2 Genesis, they actually have an output to the Sega CD, because it actually has an input on the Model 2. The Model 1 doesn't have this, but the Model 2 has an in- extra input on the expansion slot, where the audio from the Genesis gets mixed in with the audio from the Sega CD and gets output through the RCA connectors. Huh. Interesting. So is that the issue you were having with the Mega Amp then? That was the thing, because that uh, split was not there. And that's only an issue with the Genesis 2, Sega CD 2. That's correct. So 32X audio, um, from what I've gathered, the 32X in, uh, has the ability to create its own audio. Most games don't, um, but either way, it's all done internally on the Genesis. That little jumper cable on the outside only passes RGBS over to the 32X, correct? It passes mono audio as well. Does but, it? But here's the thing. The 32X audio is actually mixed inside the Genesis, mm-hmm. but is then redirected through the DIN at the 32X's RGB input. Interesting. And if you were to use a, a straight Genesis Model 1 patch cable adapter with the patch cable from for the Genesis Model 2, you just get mono audio because there's no stereo from the DIN. But if you get a custom patch cable that takes the audio from the headphone out, that's what gets redirected to the stereo pins. And you can then get that out from the output DIN on the 32X. Gotcha. So that's what I've been recommending since day one on the website. And in fact, I even recommend cables that have a female DIN connector on it so that you're essentially converting your Genesis 1's output to a Genesis 2. So you only need one RGB SCART cable. Right, that just a direct connection direct right. connection from the, the Genesis to the 32X and just stick a 9-pin SCART cable onto the uh, 32X's output right so it actually in this case you would need two jumpers and the purpose is for anybody that wants to play virtual racing or master system games you can't pass it through the 32x so the only choice is to buy two rgb scart cables or two you know two jumper cables or a jumper cable and uh you know an adapter so that's the ones that i always recommend and i i just it's so hard to explain to people without the visuals on the website but it, it does make it infinitely easier for me so well, you do have to admit, though, that Sega just made a complete mess out of the whole situation. Just already the three complete power mess. supplies, the three power supplies is just excessive. Right. And they're not even, say... they didn't even include, like, um, like what would have made sense is if you bought the 32X and it came with a higher-end power supply with, like, a bunch of pigtails so that you could plug all three devices together. But That's nope, what would make sense. Three gigantic freaking bricks that you got to figure out how to plug in. So, What I say is get a slim PlayStation 2 power supply and make a plug adapter on it that splits off the output because that thing is rated for i've seen some rated for four points i think 4.5 amps and others that are over five amps Mm -hmm. at 8.5 volts so those would power everything and i'm not a fan of switching supplies Mm -hmm. because of their noise but sony made a really good one for the playstation 2 
So you could actually just get away with that and you put less strain on your regulators because it's not like a linear power supply in that the voltage is higher than what's rated on the brick itself. Especially cool when idea. there's no, especially when there's no load on a power supply that's that's of the linear variety, you get very high voltage. Like say a Genesis power supply, you put a meter to it, it measures 14 volts with no load, and then it dropped to say 12, something like that, which a 7805 can handle, but it still makes it generate a lot more heat. There are, um, it's confusing because there's a bunch of three-in-one power supplies out there for sale. Um, there's a few good ones. There's a few terrible ones. Uh, Steve from HD Retrovision actually tested a whole bunch, and he found one that you can get on Amazon for like 12 bucks. That's uh, that's good, uh, and it's UL certified, which means it's probably more consistent than others. But um, he tested it, and I've been running that on all my consoles just to see, and I haven't had any noise on the video line. Well, any more noise than you would expect on the video lines. Um, so I'll, I'll leave a link in the description for that one too if anybody's interested. Uh, he's got adapters for everything. So and then while it still is, you know, a brick on the end, it's small. Like you could fit a couple next to each other. So that's another good alternative too. That way, you, uh, the Sony power supply might be better, but at least you're gonna have to hack up a PS2 power supply. Well, you don't necessarily have to hack it up. If you get the correct tip that plugs to the end, you could then wire in the necessary tips for the Genesis Sega CD and 32X. Good point. All you need is the tip adapter. I have such a hard time finding those because every time I feel like I've found the right ones, I get them home and they're too tight, they're a little bit too loose, they're all, you know just the hair off, and I don't know if my measurements are wrong or if just the tolerances in these cheap adapters are wrong. So, you know, they run a hundred thousand through a manufacturing process, and you know, yeah, I'm not sure, but are tighter the, than the ones at the end. I'm not sure, but I actually have a hard time, at least locally, finding tips for those yellow barrel power uh, power supply tips. Yeah, I, I find most of them on eBay or from uh, Asian sellers in Hong Kong or, or um, China or something. I can't really find them. I, I, I haven't found them, at least in the U.S. or for U.S. sellers. Yeah, I don't know online, but at least locally in Canada, at least Montreal, I haven't found anything. Hmm. So on the, on the video side of things, um, you know, the most common fix for the Genesis jail bars on models that it works is uh, either... Um, removing the composite video line, you know, separating the subcarrier frequencies and all that stuff. Um, have you found a model motherboard that's consistently better than the rest? Because uh, Mark from My Life in Gaming insists that his stock Genesis is perfect and needs no mods at all, and I've never found that ever. Every Genesis I've ever used has some kind of jail bars or... or that's what I've noticed, too. That's what I've noticed, too. Subcarrier noise on pretty much every... Genesis over RGB, but I did notice at least the VA7, unless it's just this particular one, seems to be slightly darker hmm. than the rest. Yeah, I, I definitely recommend that, uh, you know, if people want the absolute best quality out of their Genesis, to do some kind of modification or bypass to it. Um, and there's two in the works now that are taking kind of forever because the guys that are making them are a bit perfectionist. But, um, you know, Voltar's got one where it bypasses the signal to the CXA chip that's already in that motherboard. Um, so you're essentially using what's already there. You're just separating all of the signals from the board to try to remove any chance of interference. Uh, and then Renee's got one using that new, uh, well, newer THS7374 amp. Um, and that completely takes everything off the board. And there's absolutely advantages to both. But the uh, the amount 
of variance in Genesis motherboards is a little staggering, and uh, I'll I'll put up in the um, picture now. But if you want to pull up the some of the ones that I sent you, so you could look at what I'm looking at. Um, so I'm friends with Wes, the guy who hosts uh, the Second Opinion Games podcast. And when I was first experimenting with Genesis bypasses, he said, "Hey, I have my Genesis from when I was a kid." Um, do you want to do it to that one? Because, you know, I think he, maybe he had issues with it. So the first thing that I noticed is uh, there was just a random screw in the bottom of it, which I'd never seen before. So I was kind of, you know, I kind of took a little pause before opening it and went, this is a little strange. So then I saw, as I, right before I actually cracked it open, it looked like somebody had drilled holes in the bottom corner for whatever crazy reason. And this is obviously not something done with a factory machine. It looks like somebody took a little drill and just went... Bzz, bzz, bzz. Yeah, that's what I was thinking when I saw that picture. Yeah, and I called him. I was like, dude, before I open this up, like, is this... when? Did you, like, do an experiment when you were a kid? Did you, like, try to modify your Genesis? And he's like, no, I just... It's the one we, my parents bought. It's like, oh, okay, I'll open it up and see. And then... You know, that last picture, I'm putting it up right now for, for everybody watching. Um, yeah, here we go. Holy crap. <laughs> Heat sinks galore on that thing. Yeah, so it, it looks like people took pieces of metal and, like, bent it over and then cut it to, to fan it out so there's more, you know, more surface area and more uh, air, air dispersion. But that is supposedly a VA2 motherboard from the factory. Have you ever seen anything like that? Not in the slightest. I have never seen anything that just had this ridiculous amount of heat sinks on it. As mm -hmm. I was saying before we started, I had just gotten an XI that someone had put heat sinks on the ASIC and the CPU, but that was about it. I've never seen something with this many heat sinks just tossed on top of everything. Yeah, it blew my mind. I opened it up and I just, you know... I kind of took a couple of pictures, and then I started to think, all right, well, you know, maybe I could just try something, or, you know, maybe, and I just, I, I called Wes, I was like, I can't, I can't touch this thing, man. Either you, either somebody went home, modified their Genesis, and then returned it to Toys R Us, or wherever he got it from, or this was a weird experiment, in the, you know, in the factory that they said, oh, well, screw it, let's just throw it on the assembly line and send it out to the customer, they'll never notice but I, I've never, I've never seen anything like this before. Um, I don't know, I don't know what to say to this. This is, this is just ridiculous. I, I, I had to show you that because out of all the motherboard revisions you've seen, like, I was wondering if maybe you'd stumbled across something like this before and, and had some odd explanation. But I think maybe it was a prototype. I got nothing thrown into the the assembly line. That's what it would seem just by the looks of it, because there, I've never seen any heat sinks in the Genesis except on the 7805s. Right, yeah. Oof, although I, although VA0 boards from very early Japanese Mega Drives produced in 1988 actually have a, an entire circuit board with discrete logic sitting on top of the 315-50-313 VDP, which that is actually the ED clock generator. Right, so what I have seen, absolutely, and many revisions of the Genesis, are random wires soldered across the motherboard. So it was, looked like factory fixes, um, where you know, would somebody would solder a connection, fix a trace, something like that. Have you I've, seen those? I've seen, I've seen so many Genesis systems that are like that. And on those early uh, VA0s, actually, I think because of 
timing issues, the ED clock generator actually causes at least uh, Red Zone to consistently glitch and reset itself. <laughs> Jeez. I haven't um, found any other game like that, but that one is especially weird. And on the VA1 board, they actually integrated it into a little custom chip that's just under the VDP, which you can see on that VA2 picture mm-hmm. is actually the – let me zoom in here. I just don't remember the part number on top of my head. The 315.50, Gotcha. That little dip down uh, between the Z80 and the 315.50, yeah, Nick from HD Retrovision was talking about how when he was a kid, he had a Zenith TV. If anybody remembers those, they generally were the gigantic ones that looked like pieces of furniture. But um, uh, he said his Genesis wouldn't work on it, and he sent it back to the factory, and there was actually a factory mod that they did to it. Or he sent it to Sega, and there was a you know a factory mod to make it work with the Zenith TVs, I believe because of the timing. He talked about it on the last uh, Retro Roundtable podcast, so... Yeah, I do. I do think that the V-Sync on the Genesis is not quite fifty-nine point nine four or sixty hertz. I think it's a little below that. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly off the top of my head, but there is a weird quirk that I had noticed, at least with how the XRGB Mini handles the Sega System C two, which is an arcade PCB based off the Genesis hardware, but using the digital video bus on the three fifteen fifty three thirteen rather than the analog video out. Mm-hmm. There's an extra DAC connected to it. For some reason, it seems to see the refresh rate as being considerably higher than what you would get on a Genesis. And I end up with every half second, it skips a frame or two. Huh. So the one thing that I've definitely seen a lot is uh, I have a whole bunch of those Extron boxes just because I find them to be really handy for testing and wiring stuff together. Um, and they, you know, they'll tell you the refresh rate on their little LCD screen. And very, very often, uh, they don't detect the Genesis signal at all. So if you manually set it to that input, it'll pass it through and work. Um, but the refresh rates definitely, uh, on at least some model Genesis, is off, Genesis is genocide, whatever, <laughs> off by a, a hair. Um, and it, it, uh, it does have weird effects on certain equipment. It's the same thing like if you were to take off sync lock on an XRGB Mini, you'd get screen tearing mm. with the Genesis and even a master system. Yeah, well, the master system doesn't... Uh, oh, God, I think I'm, I'm going to screw this up. But, uh, so the horizontal sync slices, um, I think it's not in the signal. So the gen- or the master system, even if you play master system games through a Genesis, on many monitors, you'll actually see, like, in the upper corner, it'll turn... It'll distort the picture to one side. Um, and it's a, it's a strange thing. Uh, I'm talking to somebody about possibly making um, a, a box that regenerates the horizontal sync slices so that you make everything compatible with all displays. I actually noticed that too with the, uh, believe it or not, I actually noticed that with the Super NES a little bit. Uh, sometimes if I were to put the brightness too high, you'd see that the top of the screen would sort of lighten a little bit and then warp a little to the side. But it was on, only when I was getting a white picture, hmm. when it was an all-white screen. And it didn't matter if it was composite as video or RGB. What model SNES were you using? SHVC CPU-01, the very first board revision. Interesting. Okay. Because the one chips from the factory are definitely too bright, um, and adding the, uh, the resistors, the pull-down resistors, change the signal in a way where it actually is sharper. Um, it's dimmer as a result, obviously, but it's not as washed yeah. out. So if you were using a one chip, I would suggest uh, adding those just to see what happens. But the Yeah, SVHC I do actually is- have, uh, I have a one chip big Super NES 
mm-hmm. plus uh, Super Famicom Junior and Super NES Mini. Mm-hmm. Although the, the Super NES Mini is what I have modded for RGB. I don't have the Super Famicom Junior modded. I don't plan on modding that one specifically. There are some systems that I absolutely will not accept any mods on because those are what I consider as reference systems for things when I compare clones or software emulation. Gotcha. Yeah, I um, I've, over the years that I've been working on the site, I've seen so many bad mods come across my desk that it's really, like, it's made me upset. <laughs> so I, I will do anything possible to not cut any plastic, and almost every one of the mods I do are fully reversible. So even, like, the uh, SNES one chip, the big ones, the RGB bypass, if you wanted to put that back, all you have to do is remove that board, put up, put back, like, four little surface mount components that are 10 cents each, and that's it. You have a 100%, you know, back to the way it was, stock one chip, so... Yeah, yeah you sh- uh, I've seen my fair share of crap as well, but even things because I do I do repairs too. Mm-hmm. I've seen some absolutely filthy systems that look like they were left out in a shed. I mean, I had once an NES kicked and dead flies inside. Oh yeah, we've we've seen a lot of those. Michael from Badass Consoles and I will uh, will trade horror pictures every now and oh, then. Oh good lord, yeah. Yeah, he's just had when one I see when I cockroaches. see something, yeah. Oh god, I got a PlayStation Three like that once. <laughs> Whenever I see that sort of thing, and I I absolutely despise bugs. <laughs> if I see that kind of filth, I just toss that aside and let someone else clean it because I ain't touching that shit. Yeah, it's a little creepy. I've seen some weird stuff, uh, definitely. But yeah, nothing beats. And this is what I had seen in a slim PlayStation Three. I have literally no clue how they managed to do this. They shoved four DVDs into the drive, stacked on top of one another, and somehow it didn't damage anything. I wonder. It's, that sounds like a little kid. That yeah, sounds like a kid just jamming I, stuff in. I don't know. I have seen that with a Wii because I saw a toy accessory and even a 3DS game cartridge in the DVD drive of the in the optical drive of a Wii. That's pretty funny. A 3DS <laughs> cartridge. Jeez. Yeah, and it didn't even have a label on it. <laughs> so it was like, it was just a mystery cartridge, and I don't think I had a 3DS at the time. So how did you get started in all this stuff? I mean, you're certainly a wealth of information of, of all these things. You know, did you just find one and decide that you liked it a lot? <laughs> no, it was just actually what got me into this was just looking up uh, just hardware in general. I, I mean... Uh, what got me started was actually I had was reading up on reliability issues with the front loader NES cartridge slot mm-hmm. and the 10 NES lockout chip wreaking havoc with the consistent reset loops. And at the time, I actually the only NES I had was my father's old uh, NES that I he says he got somewhere in the mid 80s. It was actually a fairly early system, and I did check the board revisions. Actually, NES CPU 03 inside. Hmm. So relatively early system, but uh, that one still has the original slot. It still works. The cartridge slot has not been tightened. The 10 NES chip has not been disabled. But my lord, is the video quality atrocious on it? <laughs> yeah. And I, I think there's something off with the video circuit because I've seen a video of the early test batch NES CPU zero one board revision that was from the batch sold in New York. Mm-hmm. And it had the same video problems where the gamma levels looked very weird. The whites were very bright. Everything else was stupidly dark. The video was incredibly blurry. 
Hmm. And Hugh Shift did as well. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And from messing around with a Famiclone video circuit, what I had seen was that if you were to put a capacitor to ground right after the PNP transistor buffer, if that capacitor has too much capacitance, it actually causes a Hue shift. And I would assume that's what Nintendo did with those early revisions. Because I don't remember that with NESCPU 04 to NESCPU 11. Hmm. So, oh god, was it revisions 7 and 8 are supposedly the best for the NES? What Voltar was telling me was uh, 09, and that's actually my personal NES. Zero which nine. is actually the reference system I have, and that's the one that no mods are allowed on. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, that would make sense. Um, yeah, it might have been 09. I'm, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head here. Yeah, but... he, was saying, he was saying about an NESCPU 11 having pretty bad vertical lines. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I had an 11 come my way lately, although I don't remember actually paying attention to that. Yeah, I have um, a PlayChoice 10 NES uh, that I, I don't know why. It's one of the few things that's kind of useless that I just love that I own. you know. And it was, it was modded by Jason from GameTech. He did an amazing job. Everything's great in it. But I kind of oh, yeah, wanted to clean great. it up and redo it a little bit just because I love knowing that I have like an official, unofficial NES with RGB output. You know, it's an actual <laughs> yeah. chip. And it's so stupid. I know. But whatever. I, I There's very few things I have that I collect. Everything else I either use, like I play games on, or I use for research on the website. But that's one thing that I don't ever want to get rid of. I just, um, you know, I've seen a lot of hack jobs, but this is not it. This is like a really nice Play Choice 10. And Voltar keeps trying to tell me to get, it must be the Revision 9 board. Um, to try to make it even better, because mine had almost no jail bars, which is pretty shocking for a PlayChoice 10 NES. So, yeah, because I, I had inserted a 2C05 into a HVCCPU07 revision Famicom, vertical mm-hmm. lines everywhere. Yeah, and that was just with the THS7314 doing uh, amplification. But it seems as if, and that was the first thing I noticed with that, is the output is actually very heavily saturated, mm-hmm. and the whites were somewhat dark and I had noticed, at least with 75 ohm resistors, the voltage, when I was putting a white line test pattern with the 240p test suite, it didn't seem to hit one volt peak to peak. So, but you were, I mean, if you're talking about your your dad's nest, were you a kid when you started messing with all this stuff? Uh, I was 14, actually, in 2006. Yeah, a kid. Did your dad have an oscilloscope or something, and that's how you're able to mess with all this? No, the oscilloscope was actually the CJEP I was attending was ridding their old equipment hmm. right when I completed the three-year program I was in. Mm-hmm. And I ended up taking home an oscilloscope and even a test pattern generator for calibrating CRTs. Oh, those are! I actually used one of those for the first time the other day. A, I would actually have to use it on this TV behind me, which is a KV30HS420 mm-hmm. HDQ, because the geometry on this thing, calibrating it is an absolute freaking nightmare, and I'm really losing my patience with it. My cousin Scott uh, has a similar model to that, and it's um, he spent like two hours, and he got it good, but it's still it's still off. Yeah, my main issue is on this corner, it seems to pinch near the middle. Yep. For the most part. And the biggest issue I have, though, is pin cushion adjustment because I always end up where the middle of the screen is either straight and everything on the edge tends to bow outwards or just the other way around. It just squeeze inwards in the middle and on the side it just be perfectly straight. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a pain, but... So, geez, you were just, uh, you know, you just kind of started messing with it. Uh, did you do just research online, you know, get, bring the scope home and start poking around? Uh, actually, it was a while before I used the scope. It was when I was starting to do arcade PCB repair work, which that's still I haven't managed to get off the ground that much because my first attempt was actually on the Konami Life Force PCB that I had just picked up broken. And uh, that thing actually uh, went up in smoke <laughs> for no apparent reason. Jeez. Just, it's a two PCB sandwich where you got the logic, most of the logic on top and the video boards on the bottom. It ended up, the bottom board actually just ended up smoking near one of the c custom Konami chips. It burned a hole through the board. The chip is still working, even with a damaged pin. But now it's just showing up scrambled garbage. Jeez. And even now, I have a really obnoxious R-Type 2 board that just, I don't know what is its problem. I can't get it to get past the uh, power on test it just keeps locking up to an uh, a ram error of some some sort so i am uh by no means an expert nor do i ever pretend to be but whenever i've traced out problems like that um the things that i see often are uh, leaky capacitors damaging traces um and it could be you know five or six traces very close to each other and only one is damaged so it's kind of hard to see and that i've wasn't seen the case. i've seen ram chips just go bad on all uh, all yeah, types that of I've, things that i've seen because at least on the uh daughter board that's on it with the video roms or at least i think the the video roms uh some of the ram actually had floating pins on it hmm. and they were they were the address uh, lines from what i remember they, they, they were showing nothing on my scope, nothing on my logic probe either. Yeah, okay. Bad RAM chips. <laughs> yeah, but but even then, even the logic chips that were connected to them were getting stupidly hot very fast. So those were likely internally shorted. Jeez. You know, that's what, that's what you get when we deal with hardware. That's Yeah, you know, and what doesn't help either is that there are no schematics to the uh, R-Type 2 PCB except for a partial one around the CPU area that doesn't really help me at all hmm. and all i have as extra reference is a hammer and harry pcb that uses the same bottom but the top is slightly different even That's with it. that if i were to have a second r-type 2 board that actually works that would help were it not for the fact that it costs a stupid amount of money to actually get one hmm. yeah you know so i am um, i'm always a fan of using original hardware uh, and FPGA, you know, emulation, I think, it, it, we've done right, is absolutely how these things are going to live on. But the one thing that I, I absolutely love software emulation for is arcade stuff, just because it's so it's so hard to fix and keep these things running and expensive, and, you, you know, it's hard to find the room to store all this stuff. So, so One of the worst PCBs I've seen is uh, anything based on Konami's bubble system board. Oh, yeah? Because that's not actually ROMs in, in the proper sense of a ROM chip. It's using bubble memory. Hmm. So basically, I think it's some sort of magnetic storage. Those things tend to go bad over time. And Konami actually had so many reliability issues that they converted the games to use ROMs. Weird. Except those, I have a Gradius PCB like that of the bubble system variety. I could never get it to work. It uses four voltages because of the bubble memory. Hmm. Because it, it needs five volts for the logic, it needs 12 volts for the audio amp, and it needs negative five and negative 12 as well for the bubble memory. That's, wow. 
What a complicated design. I wonder what the reasonings were for doing something like that. I, I, I don't know. It was. I think the base idea was really to have one main PCB and just interchangeable games because the bubble memory cartridges are actually connected via a ribbon cable to the motherboard. Nuts. It was uh, it was a really stupid system, and they ended up that is actually so problematic that you can't even emulate it properly. It's just the ROM version of Gradius that's emulated, which that one doesn't actually run the same way because uh, with the slower access times on the uh, bubble memory, you have the, the game actually has to warm up before it starts <laughs> because bubble memory is a specific operating temperature and there is a heating element, which I think is just a big resistor. So that's some technology that um, uh, maybe that's what we had. So I used to my first corporate, you know, corporate IT job. I was nineteen, and it was at Brinks Home Security, and uh, they had been there since the seventies. And um, the guy, the network administrator, had been there since the seventies. And I kind of, you know, I, I was nineteen, he was sixty-eight or something. The dude taught me taught me more in the three and a half years that I worked there than you know the the next or than the previous ten years of my life, I guess. But. Um, one of the things he was telling me about is they had a system where they said, okay, you know, you have to run this at an exact constant temperature. And, you know, it could be, it was actually a very wide temperature tolerance, but it can't really vary more than about a degree or two at any time while it's running or else you'll get errors. So this is early 80s. And he said, so, you know, they had, they were talking about different refrigeration systems. They were talking about everything else. And he's like, well, why don't we just use an oven? I was, what, are you crazy? Because the temperature tolerances are almost up to 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Why don't we just get an oven and set it at 130? It's never going to get 130 in this room. Everybody's like, no, that's never going to work. Sure as shit, they had that running for a while. <laughs> it was, they, they got it. They used it to do whatever data transfer they were doing. So they, they had an oven carried in there. It was there for a couple of months. <laughs> I, just, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> That's actually pretty funny, and I would assume that is something based on bubble memory. But yeah. I, I don't think that the rest of the integrated circuits would probably take too kindly to that kind of heat. No, he was actually talking about how he had to put that one module into the oven and then isolate it so it wasn't you know touching. Oh well, if it was just yeah. a if it was, if it was just a basic bubble memory module with no logic on it, well, in that instance, it would make sense. Yeah, that's that's hysterical. I love that. That you know that um that same company, right? We got uh I guess they had a situation where um the senior VP told uh the secretary like, "Hey, this is uh, an Excel spreadsheet that has the safe data for all of the individual offices around I think the world actually. So don't put this on the shared drive. Only keep it on your computer because, you know, we can't let this information out." Which Makes sense and doesn't. So this was late 90s, early 2000s, so I, I get it. Um, security wasn't as, as well educated out there. So her computer dies. So I, you know, I swapped it out with another one, and I had kind of left it on the shelf. I, hadn't, I was just a desktop support technician, and I hadn't touched it. I was busy with other stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the big boss, who was an ex-colonel in the military, and it was very, you know, very scary guy if you weren't used to being around people like that. I was, so I didn't really care. But, you know, he, he comes in, like, his face was white, and just, yeah, you know, that PC that died had the safe info on it. Don't worry, it's not your fault. Did you erase it? I said, well, no, the, I think the hard drive's actually dead. Do you want me to take a look at it? No, no, no. 
So I, I heard through the, you know, I'm 20 at this point. Maybe I was still 19. So I was definitely just the kid. They paid no attention to me whatsoever. So I thought, you know, screw it. I read this whole article about why this one model was of hard drive was dying. So I put it in an anti-static bag, and then I, you know, wrapped it in something, and I left it in the freezer that night when we left. <laughs> and then the next morning, you know, I see all these people in that guy's office, and you know, it's you know, very stiff board meeting, and they're apparently they were talking about sending a team of people out. To go to each, you know, imagine like the Secret Service with a briefcase, you know, with the, uh, you know, with the handcuffs on it type of thing. To go <laughs> yeah. to each individual main office to check the safe data so that they could get the secure info and put it into a secure location. So I get in the morning, you know, that morning at like 7 a.m., I take, you know, the thing out of the freezer. I had a whole station set up. And then I put it right into the thing, turn it on, get it, copy the file, burn it to a CD. And I walked into the meeting. And this guy, I mean... This was a, a by-the-book, you know, ex-colonel in the Marines thing, you know. And I interrupted the meeting, and his face turned red. I thought he was going to kill me in front of the whole thing. And I was like, I'm really sorry to interrupt, but I know you guys are talking about the safe data. I think I got the file, but I didn't want to open it for obvious reasons. Here you go. And he was so mad. I thought, like, he was going back and forth between wanting to fire me right there and throw me out the window. And then he was embarrassed because it's like, why is this 19-year-old kid bringing me a CD? Why did we even call the meeting? And, uh, you know, about two minutes later... The whole team of guys walk out of the room past the computer room, and they're all kind of smirking at me. And the guy comes back in, and he's like, just tell me the next time you're going to do something like that. <laughs> so I recovered the file just because the, the expanding and contracting of the metal, you know, the I guess uh, the yeah. had gotten stuck. So when I froze it, you know, it, the metal moved, and then I put it right into the PC and unstuck, got the file back. I love Good old that. thermal expansion. Yep, I love shit like that. That stuff makes me so happy. Just stupid little stories like that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a, that was a really good one, actually. Yeah, I still can't believe that. Actually, I, I've told that story to a couple people, and they're like, "That didn't happen." I'm like, yeah, if I was gonna lie about something. It'd be something cooler than that. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I, I love mean, that one. Uh, yeah, so, I, I think you. I, I don't even think someone who never even touched a, a computer would even be able to come up with something like that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I've always been, I, you know, I've never been an expert at anything, uh, and I've never pretended to be, but I've always been like a good middleman. So, like, I've always been able to put different pieces together to come up with shit like that. So. I don't claim myself to be an expert either. I mean, I'm still a university student. I don't have a degree yet. Yeah, you don't need a degree to be an expert. It's nice, and, <laughs> and it works. Well, I, I mean, practical knowledge is really where it's at, but you need to at least have some of the theory behind it. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, although sometimes I will say it does get a bit infuriating because it seems like they're always beating around the bush, just going around a bunch of useless bullshit. Yeah, I have I have so many issues with that. So if I had if I had gone to college in a different time period, five years earlier, five years after, maybe a little more, I think I would have a different perspective on this. But when I enrolled in college, the four or five that I was looking at, because you know I wasn't it was the poor kid, I couldn't afford to go to a fancy school. Um, and I hated high school, so I got whatever grades were good enough so I could pass and move on to the next year. You know, I'd spend two minutes working on a homework assignment and screwing off. All of the colleges basically said, like, yeah, you won't even touch a computer until halfway through your senior year. You know, we're going to give you these math, English, and science classes, and, you know, and nothing was theory. Nothing was any of the interesting stuff. It was basically high school 2.0. And then I, I, I talked to different tech schools that were the opposite. They said, no, you do, 
you know, you do the hands-on stuff first, and then you go back and get your other education, and one was cheap and close to me. So I went to that, and I was learning stuff that I had been doing since, I mean, since I was a kid kid, you know, since, like, before high school. Yeah. They were teaching us, like, Windows 3.1 stuff, and I'm like, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Where's the theory? You know, where's, you know, I want to learn uh, the network topology layer, topography layer, so, and, you know, and, and um, I want to learn the this, this stuff behind it. And it was, oh, yeah, yeah, do this first, then do your math and English, and then go back for that. So I just, as soon as I got a real job, I screwed right off and started just work. And then throughout the years, like, I'd find people. One guy was had a master's degree in computer science with, I mean, every certification you can imagine. And I was, I think, 23, and he was 28 or something. And he comes in. And I was so excited to work with him because I was like, shit, this guy's going to know everything. I, every, every time I have a question, I don't need to Google. I could just ask this guy. And he knew all of the theories. And if we needed code written to talk to any of the layers, he could do it. But when I started talking about, yeah, well, I'm just going to deploy you know, an image to those four computers over there, he just looked at me like, well, how are you going to do that? Well, we could use the imaging machine. I could use Ghost. I could send it over the network. You know, don't you have a fucking master's degree? <laughs> so it's just I think I hit I think I hit college in the worst time for a computer person to do it. So uh, I, you know I didn't get I didn't find the school that I could get the groundwork to to learn the back of this stuff. Um, and none of them none of them were good at the hands on. So I just kind of figured my way through it. And I got lucky. I've had some amazing jobs and done some shit that was I can't believe I pulled off. But I just, uh, I do very much wish that things had fallen into place different so I could have some solid core knowledge of something. I mean, I know yes. there's always time to go back, but you also... Same deal, with, same deal with me when I was in CGIP. I had originally gone to a program that was pretty much nothing electronics, just a little bit of Java, mm -hmm. and the rest was just math, physics, and chemistry, and that really got me so demotivated at uh, one point that... I just said, the hell with this. I'm switching programs. And I did switch over. Uh, the program was in a bit of a crisis at the time because there were some teachers that uh, students had actually uh, complained about because uh, they, we, they had to get, we have to get internships at the end of the program for three weeks. And they weren't getting it. So wow. they actually ended up uh, filing complaints to the point where some teachers actually got suspended. Oh, wow. So th from then on, the program was reworked. And, and, but it was actually through that that I could have actually made the Mega Amp possible because it was in my third year, no, second year in the program that I had seen op amps for the first time. <laughs> and from then on, it was just focus on this because this is actually something that I want to get myself into. I, I love hearing stuff like that because, you know, you just stumble over and discover something and realize you like it because, you know, so many yeah. people at, at any age, if you say, like, well, what do you really want to do? They go, I don't know. <laughs> I got this yeah. job. I keep doing it, whatever. So it, it's so, I don't know, it's very fulfilling, I guess, is a, a good word to use when you find something that you really Definitely. enjoy and then you get to go do it, you know? Definitely. And there's there's more to it than just that. Uh uh, I like to build computers. I mean, modern PCs, retro computers. I, I especially have an interest in the older computers, especially because those are actually more hands-on when it comes to configuration. If you were to just get something new with, uh, say, a Core i7 or a Ryzen, whatever, 357, whatever you want, that you just 
stick the CPU inside, and the BIOS will auto configure everything for you. Yes, you don't unless have to you want any to do jumpers. You don't have to look up yeah, the diagram. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. That's exactly right, and that's actually what appeals to me with the older boards. Even though my main DOS Windows 9X gaming computer doesn't actually use those, except uh, no, actually that's not true. There are dip switches for the front side bus frequency on it. Yep. Which I'd actually probably desolder and put a switch because I'm using this as a hybrid PC that because it runs on an AMD K63 Plus. Mm-hmm. And what I discovered through YouTube channel Phil's Computer Lab was that you could actually alter the frequency of the K63 Plus through software and also through the front side bus hmm. with the, the dip switches and jumpers of your motherboard so that you can make and also disable the internal cache to have it run anything between a 386 and Pentium 2 early Pentium 3 performance levels. Wow, I didn't know that. So you really have a big variety of uh, DOS uh, games especially that you could run because those some of them are timing sensitive. You know, uh, people will never understand what it's like to have to, you know, pre-Google, you have to have a driver on a 3.5-inch floppy drive and then, oh, yes. you know, I once or twice in my life, I had something happen where I needed to reinstall the modem driver, oh. and then it was the wrong driver, so then we had to get into a car and drive to somebody else's house who had a computer with a modem, oh, and then crap. sit there for an hour and download the one megabyte file, and then get back in the car and drive back to that person's house and hope that was the right driver, and if not, go back to that other... I mean, this is the days of, like, I'm going to Google this on my cell phone and uh, email it to myself, and then poof, there's the driver, you know, that's... Yeah, uh, not not back then, not back then. That was very impractical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I uh, I wasn't around in the 80s to actually experience that, but... I think it was the... uh, So I'm 36 now, so it was probably the early 90s. You know, whenever I had cousins that were old enough to have cars, I guess, was the... (laughs) So probably 94 (laughs) or something, 95 was... uh, Yeah, I was still still a young kid at the time. Yeah, it's... uh, I I love that I did get to go through that. Yeah, I do kind of miss, though, at least the era of the transition from DOS to Windows, Windows 95, 98. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember, I especially remember the dial-up modem that we used to have here. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I remember those and too. stuff. Yeah, I remember when I found those first, like, Juarez chat rooms, and I would leave my computer on overnight to download those things over the telephone line. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, if it didn't, if it was like 7 in the morning and... You know, my my grandparents would pick up the phone to to call for the weather. Remember, you used to have to do that, <laughs> and then uh, hear that. <laughs> what did I do with uh, over the phone once? I, it was actually something that I had seen. There was a, uh, I think, a hotline or something regarding seasonal allergies that I had seen advert uh, on TV when they were doing allergy reports, because my father and I are both uh, allergic to uh, ragweed, especially. Mm-hmm. So uh, when it comes to that time, especially me, I just have no energy. I Oof. pretty much don't care about anything, and I just want to sleep. Yeah, that's And on top of that, I get itchy as hell. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. It's especially in the mouth, and that is really not pleasant, I'll tell you that. Oof. So um, what else have you been working on? We talked a shitload about Genesis and about uh, you know the evolution of some of the things that you've worked on. What's uh, what's the current focus that you have? Anything? Well, right now it's just comparing clones. I got my AVS in. AVS is pretty awesome, right? 
Yeah, not uh, not what the original firmware this thing came with. I don't know why this came with firmware 1.0 when I got it. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I, got, I took an audio sample on it. It was so bad that I had to immediately flash uh, the, the firmware 1.2 on it. So when I received it, um, when I first got it to review, uh, it came with 1.0, but the different firmware was already out. And uh, Brian had said, hey, by the way, just make sure to use it. So I don't – yeah, the fact that you got it with the the very first firmware is strange. Yeah, and this is from the second batch too with the uh, – Oh, wow, really? Yeah, well, one thing I will say, and I did have a look inside the USB port, is actually – I think it's part through hole, part surface mount. It's not that surface mounted one that could easily rip off the board. They, so that was the updated design. Now, yeah, did you is... use the beta firmware that has the FBX color profile in there? Uh, I think there's a finalized 1.2 now. Yeah, you, that's the one you should use because it's. That's a, the one I have on difference. this, and I do have the uh, unsaturated version six selected. Good. Yeah, it's, uh, it's yeah. The best although choice. for the whenever I do software emulation or even on my NES RGB, I use the NTSC Direct palette. Oh, yeah? Because I try to match it to what the XRGB Mini gets out of the the NES's composite out. Right, out of your version 9 motherboard. Yeah, that's my reference. Although, uh, I do actually have... The, I will mention one thing. I'm currently actually working on a... Let me get them out here. They're in my shelf. I have the classic edition systems that I'm currently working on a huge comparison video... I got them both here, NES and Super NES. Oh, cool. And I'm trying to gather major hardware revisions of each system. Clones, software emulation, even a Retron 5. Hmm. And the idea is to just make this big comparison where I just play a certain segment of each of the 30 and 21 games on each system and just go through starting with the original consoles, uh, fully unmodified. Then I move on to the classic editions nintendo's previous efforts with the virtual console hmm. then i moved to hardware clones of which there are actually a, quite a number of different types for uh, nes and super nes and some are really terrible oh my <laughs> god yeah i'm sure you remember this oh yeah i still have mine uh, yeah this this is among one of the worst clones i've ever tested yeah, I mean, when I interviewed Chris, he was very, very open and honest about it being an entry-level toy for people that you know just yeah. want to play a couple of cards. It's it's strange that the it's strange though because this actually doesn't feel like a cheap clone to me. It actually feels pretty. No, pretty the plastic sturdy. itself, the, you know, that's a real mold. So that's, yeah, that's this really is really good quality plastic. It, it really is. It's it's very thick, and uh, at least on mine, the solder work is not that bad on it. But the thing with that, what I could absolutely speak for experience, is um, if they know that they're going to sell 100000 because that's about the tolerance of those uh, where you have to get a new tool, um, it's actually cheaper overall to spend fifty grand, maybe even a little more depending on what, um, you know, what, uh, like those, uh, the curve on the end and like the, the vents, like that stuff actually adds a lot of cost. But it oh, might yeah, actually sure. be cheaper to spend 50, 60, 70 grand on those because then each piece costs about a dollar. So overall, you mm-hmm. have you know 150 grand to sell 100,000. That means you just add a dollar 50 to each cost for a really nice plastic, and yeah. it's cheaper than other methods. So that actually does make sense to me. I actually do have a question for you regarding the uh, Retron HD. Does your stutter? What do you mean by stutter? 
uh, because on my TV over HDMI, it seems like it's skipping frames uh, depending on what's on screen. You know, that's a good question. Um, the the TV that I used to do the most testing is an actual, an absolute piece of garbage. Uh, that's just it was perfect to fit in my office. It, it's compatible with every resolution. So that's yeah. I just use it just to do some testing. Yeah, I do have I, to actually uh, mention a compatibility note, and I do actually have a comparison going with this thing right now, but. Uh, this samples audio 32 kilohertz over HDMI, and I noticed that this TV behind me doesn't even take it. Yeah, you know that's um uh, that's the, an issue with a lot of um, mods like this, like the the GC Video HDMI mod. Um, some TVs actually aren't compatible with the audio out of that, but not yeah. many. So I'm well, wondering this where case, it is. In this case, it's actually a sample rate that the TV doesn't support because my sharp LCD that's uh, not on on a screen here. That one takes the audio fine. But what I noticed too is that at least with the Elgato Game Capture HD60, if I pass this through first and then uh, take the HDMI out to this TV, I get sound. Interesting. Huh. It's almost it, to me. It seems like it's probably resampling to 48 kilohertz. That's what I would assume, or or maybe even 44.1. But uh, regardless. I have to have the Game Capture HD60 actually alter the, the uh, audio feed first. Weird. Yeah, I mean, you know, stuff like that to me, um, you know, th- there's absolutely a place in the market for it. Uh, it's not me, and it's definitely yeah. not you, but uh, there is a place in the market for toys like that. So, uh, you know, it's just not quality. But you also it, don't pay quality prices. It's pretty yeah, damn If cheap. you will allow me, actually, to... Uh, mentioned that I'm trying to actually get some clone designs out myself and I did post a teaser video on my channel I'm going to announce it here that I am actually trying to prototype a couple of different clone designs for which systems? Uh, for now just NES but I'm going to move to Genesis later actually oh, wow. uh, if you'll excuse me for a little moment I have this is actually kind of falling apart right now because I would just quickly wired it up as a test uh, this is I'm not sure I'm actually going to mass produce this, except maybe as a portable, but I have here this three PCB mess of wires, which you could probably recognize the slot. I don't know if you'll recognize, I actually have to, over here, this is actually a QFP NOEC on it. Oh yeah? Yeah, a fairly old chip that I had actually found in a a clone uh, at a flea market. And it seemed to actually be not that bad, at least for an entry-level clone. It does work with Castlevania 3, and it does work with Rad Racer 2. Oh, okay. Which, those are the two big problem games that I have. Uh, especially because what I see most clones do is they omit, and this was actually mentioned in last week's podcast. Uh, I think Voltar was actually the one who mentioned it, that the CHR not A13 address line is missing on a lot of clones. Hmm. And that's that's really the big issue with Castlevania 3, but what also affects Rad Racer 2 is an input known as CIRAM not chip enable, or not CE for short, which that actually controls the PPU's internal RAM. Rad Racer 2 actually permanently disables this because it has its own RAM in the cartridge. You know, that's some, one of the things about those old cartridge games that we definitely don't get nowadays, is if uh, the hardware of the console wouldn't do what it needed, just added the chip right on the PCB of the cart. <laughs> yeah, not, not anymore. You get things like the PlayStation 4 Pro and Xbox One X. If you need more hardware, you just go out and get something with more powerful hardware inside. Yeah, yeah. Uh, eh, not exactly that practical uh, 
especially for someone like me who likes to collect hardware, especially really quirky things. And even sometimes, back to what I was saying with the NES Classic Edition and Super NES Classic Edition comparisons, there are some systems that I'm using as stand-ins because mm. of how scarce they are. And this is specifically the revised versions of the top loader NES, the J10 variant board revision of the RF top loader NES, and the uh, NES NCPU AV01, which is the composite model that the only documentation I've ever seen on it is a set of pictures and a video on YouTube. Really? Nothing else? That's it. And But from what I can tell just by op- observing the circuitry, at least the NES NCPU AV01 is pretty much a carbon copy of the AV Famicom, except for an extra transistor circuit on the audio out. Hmm. But it's the, it's the exact same circuit. And personally, I think that transistor circuit shouldn't even be there. Because at least with the disk system, if you try to do a gain fix on the AV Famicom, because that internal lamp is just crap, it mm-hmm. just screws up expansion audio balance like hell, you get very bad distortion, at least the disk system. Huh. Interesting. That was one thing I noticed. Every time I would mod an AV Famicom to fix up the audio circuit, I just get distorted garbage from a disk system. Huh. But I went so far as to, this is going to seem like a really dumb mod, but I did this on purpose because I really don't have any other option. Uh, just looks like your basic AV Famicom. I actually stuffed an RF box on it. <laughs> this is my stand-in for the J10 revision uh, top loader NES, the one that's supposed to correct the vertical alliance problem. Jeez, that's awesome. Yeah, it's actually what I found was that the audio circuit is the same as on just a basic NES NCPU01 top loader, which is 160 ohm pull down resistors and then 200 and 100 ohm resistors mixing the audio together. Hmm. Uh, capacitor, series capacitor, one microfarad, 220 mic, no, 220 PF to ground, and a 39 microhenry inductor into the RF box. So Jeez. replicated that there. But then I found that the video circuit was actually the same base as the AV Famicom, but the resistor layout is not the same. And what I found, what I discovered by messing around with this was that the arrangement was, because on an AV Famicom is typically a 300-ohm pull-up resistor at the emitter of the 2SA937 transistor, mm-hmm. followed by a capacitor, an inductor, and a 110-ohm resistor out to the AV connector. On this, from what I found was that it's set up like the old Famicom in that it's a 300-ohm series resistor out the transistor, and at that junction, it splits off into a 110-ohm pull-up resistor, and that's... Uh, inductor that I don't exactly know the exact value is straight to the RF box hmm. with a 330 PF capacitor to ground and it does give a much better result N- no vertical lines and the colors actually look better too so I'm assuming that you're um, you're going to take all of this knowledge that you've been picking up and put it in uh, your clone machine when it's ready well uh, I would actually prefer to get something with HDMI oh really? yeah but uh, one thing that I was tossing around was possibly integrate because it's still possible to make discrete clone designs. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I did find a fairly good clone CPU, although it does have a bit of a quirk in that the clock divider is higher than what's in a 2A03. 
So I have to use two separate clocks for the PPU and CPU. And what I was considering was to possibly integrate an NES RGB directly on the board and have possibly a... I'm not sure if maybe integrating an OSSC or something else so that it has both analog and digital outs. Interesting. That was just an idea I was tossing around. But I'm also thinking I don't have enough knowledge of FPGAs yet. Right. But I would actually go... That's a whole other world (laughs) to dig into. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, just trying it out myself, I had issues just trying to define a bidirectional bus. (laughs) Because... You could define a pin as being bidirectional, but then to actually have it internally split off as in out, the actual control signals, I don't actually really know how to work that yet. So do you know about how far away are you from uh, you know a prototype that, that you could show off? Is it months, years? Well, that board I showed you is a working prototype, although I do have to fix my wires. Okay, so and we're I do have months out from footage. something that you could send out for review, I guess. Then yeah, I do have capture footage actually on my channel of the, the well, the discrete clone design was actually prototyped in a top loader NES with a socketed CPU and PPU. But the idea is to then possibly integrate more of that at least into a CPLD, so that the discrete logic doesn't take up as much board space. And integrate gotcha. level shifters if I end up with a three point three volt version because I've actually got some absolutely horrific sights when it comes to using 3.3 volt devices in 5 volt electronics what we know about the um yes it's almost like somebody should write an article about that and then get flamed by random people on the internet who don't understand (laughs) yeah and i'll tell you one thing that's actually really made me rage Mm -hmm. and it's the uh, super retro trio this is specifically version two of the system what the hell did Retrobit do with this thing? Because you know, actually, I, I've never even used one. I, I they, gener- when I see those things, I usually just turn around and walk away. You sh- you really shouldn't, because there are some that are actually genuinely not that bad. I mean, version one of this is actually really good. Oh wow, really? Except for one issue, and that's the RAM on the Super NES slot, because huh. these use three point three volt RAM. The entire system is five volts, and the RAM is overvolted. Wow. We're literally talking 5 volts VCC going to the chip and 5 volt I.O. Okay. Yeah, and if you look at the data sheets, you will see that the absolute maximum rating doesn't even reach 5 volts. is 4.6. And even then, you shouldn't – you should never have your design run the chips at that voltage. No. No. Um, uh, heat tolerances, um, there's so many variants to it. You really should plan on running your design at 75%. Because there's just so many other factors involved that, you know, that it affect this and would, would really severely shorten the life of or actually damage some of these things. Yeah, and I mean, uh, if, I, if I ever end up making a Super NES clone, there's only one clone chipset I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Although it did get shrunk down over time. I think the first time I saw this shrunken design was in 2011 with a FC twin that I don't exactly remember what was the revision. Hmm. Well, actually, I don't actually know which one it is because... I've seen five different internals on the FC Twin. The first revision actually had a really shit NOAC. There's actually a carryover from the FC Game Console version 1, which hmm. is the typical type that has reverse duty cycles. Oh. And that's how you get the weird audio, like what you experience with the Retron HD. Because what ends up happening in that is that 
uh, two of the bits that select the duty cycles are reversed, and you end up with, uh, I think it's 25 and 50% that are reversed. And hmm. so what you get is if you have a sound that's made for 25%, you get 50% and vice versa. Wow, that seems like a pretty big mistake. Yeah, and that originated from a UMC-manufactured 2A03 clone. Jeez. Which, to this day in 2017, is still a huge issue. And I, every time I say something about those things, I always end up bashing them for it. Because there is absolutely no excuse to use a chipset like that when you have better designs that have already been in clones since 2007 when the yeah. FC Twin was revised to version 2. Yeah, that stuff disappoints me. So it disappoints I will, um, you, it actually makes me rage. <laughs> I, will, uh, I will make sure to leave a link to your YouTube channel that shows the examples of this stuff. Um, and it's really exciting that somebody's uh, trying to approach clones from a little bit different perspective. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what the, the stuff that you come up with for these. Yeah, because clones, clones are actually good alternatives as long as you go with the right system for your needs because there are some people who are more tolerant of inaccuracies and for those I mean some of the HDMI clones could actually be okay except maybe for EverDrive compatibility which I still have not figured out what the deal is with that Yeah, but it's so strange because it's just the latest reverse duty cycle NOACs with HDMI outs Mm -hmm. that do that because the 8-bit HD the first revision Works with the EverDrive Nate, but the later version 2, and also everything else that came after that, the Retron HD, and also RetroBits RES Plus, don't work with that. And I still have to actually get that in for testing. Huh. So I don't mean to put you on the spot like this or anything, but with the, the new revision of the website coming out, would you be willing, whenever you had free time, to dump your info on what's a good clone, what's a bad clone, and maybe just, you know, whatever's t- the most time-efficient uh, time for you, just because I certainly don't want to take up hours of your time. But hey, well, I, as, long as, I'm, as long as I'm not doing any university work or modding, repairing, prototyping designs, I mean, I'm up for it. As long as it doesn't impede on what's more important for me. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the whole point of the new site is just, you know, a, a thing where whenever people have time, you know, if you have info, post it there. And, you know, I'm not saying don't go to other forums, but if you have a great forum conversation about something, don't let it get lost. It's, you know, stick archive it on this, that. link archive back that to... Because, uh, mm-hmm. You really should archive that thing because sometimes you'll end up with good information that gets lost. Like I had stumbled upon one of your older... Uh, videos that showed Mega Man 9 and 10 on the Wii that you could force to 480p Mm -hmm. and the link was dead yeah yep and I didn't save it so oh that sucks yeah so all that information I want to save that would actually be really good to run a 240p though yeah, Especially the, there's because, issues uh, in why that couldn't happen but um, I think I think with some clever hacking you'd be able to get the uh You'd be able to get those wads running at 240p. Yeah, you'd probably have to tweak the game code a little more than probably just setting a flag, which uh, is that really what ended up happening with uh, sending it to 480p? I think it was. Uh, I can't lines? really remember. It was so long ago, and I've done so much stuff between then. But yeah, that's, uh, you know, regardless of whatever happens at the Indiegogo, the site's going to be released. It might be released blank at that point, but um, <laughs> it's going to be finished and it's going to be open to the public forever for free. So I just hope. I hope so much of this info isn't lost, um, you know, because people put so much time into this stuff and just yeah. just try to find 
you know, somebody's uh, somebody's revelation about a board revision buried in a thread somewhere. Forget it. You'll spend more time doing that than you would trying to figure it out yourself. So, yeah, even even just to try to get information on some obscure Genesis clone chipsets is freaking difficult, and I always end up with Russian forms, especially because it seems like those things are really common over there. Mm. And what yeah. I'd like to actually do is. Uh, there is a interesting clone chip of the Genesis that integrates the 68000, the Z80, uh, bus arbiter, I.O. controller, and even a YM3438 that I personally plan on shutting off and put a YM2612 in its place that I could then connect an RGB VDP clone to and get, get a design out like that that I could then have analog video and even HDMI if I could get a good ADC on that. Hmm. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So, um, geez, I gotta have you back on a different time to talk about your clone stuff. Um, uh, this is awesome. I, I mean, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do all this. This was, uh, I think people are really gonna to re- appreciate and enjoy the info that you shared and we have to do this again between now and never. I mean, this oh, it's always cool. it's always a pleasure to share knowledge because for me, I get more satisfaction out of helping others learn than actually teaching myself. Yeah, me too. Obviously, with the website, I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't waste my time on it if I didn't. And it's just, uh, you know, I've start I've started to really realize how much the followers of this channel really appreciate the more technical end of stuff. So while I do love all of the interviews I do, I always, uh, well, almost always, there was that one, but I almost always have a great time. Uh, but I do, my heart is always deep, buried deep in the technical stuff. So things like this, I just turn into a, like a wide-eyed kid again when, uh, when we start digging into some of the real, more technical ends of things. So thank yeah. you, and I appreciate it. Anytime. Um, I'm going to have a link to your YouTube channel down below. Um, and uh, where's, uh, you know, are you on social media or anything? Do you want me to put a link to Twitter or any of that stuff? All I have is Twitter. I don't want anything to do with Facebook, personally. Yeah, I don't either. So, all right. Yeah. Well, the links will be down below. Um, I will uh, definitely be talking to you again about this stuff, and I'll see everybody next time. See ya.